Good evening and welcome again to Sunday night service here at Moody Church. And Merry Christmas and we're glad that you are joining us um, for worship tonight. We're continuing our series tonight on Christmas classics, looking at the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke. So I'd encourage you um, to grab a Bible, open your phone, or if you have a Bible with you, to Luke chapter 2, which is going to be the text that we're going to be looking at tonight as we study the Christmas story. Well, there's certain things that we're told that kind of become truth around us and we begin to believe are true, but actually are just legend and aren't actually true at all. All right, the, the word that often occurs to this is that's an urban legend. When I think of urban legends that, that immediately come to mind for me, one of them is this, and I remember this at, at parties at my friend's house and others, is that if you eat food, you're supposed to wait 30 minutes till you get back into a swimming pool. And I remember as a kid, I would never want to eat lunch when we'd have a swimming party because then that meant I had to sit outside the pool for a certain amount of time and I wanted to get in and keep swimming. That rule has zero basis in science. In fact, somehow it just got made up, but we somehow believed it was true. Another one which I remember people talking about as if you were going to chew bubblegum, you couldn't swallow it. Because if you swallowed it, it lived in your stomach. And I remember people saying this for seven years. And so if you swallow enough gum, your stomach will fill up and you'll die. Well, that sounds very dramatic and it's probably to help kids not swallow their bubblegum and spit it out. But the reality is if you swallow your gum, your body will get it out in normally around two days, not seven years. But somehow these things kind of took on a life of their own, right? And, and these things that we thought were true started to get out there. And this is true in many senses when it comes to the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus that we're going to look at tonight. And today we're just going to walk through about 20 verses or so here in Luke 2 that recount the birth of Jesus. And I just want to challenge us to, to so much of what we think about with this story is influenced by plays at school, movies on TV, even decorations that we see around us. But we should let scripture inform what the Christmas story actually was rather than just our assumptions of what happened. And so I hope you have your Bible with us tonight as we jump in here to the text, Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1. It says this, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And so this is a good reminder to us that these events that take place are real events. They're historical events, and they take place in measurable time in history. And so last week we looked at kind of the prophecies to Mary, right, of Jesus to be born. And now the setting is kind of to take place for the birth of Jesus. And we're introduced to the time period. It was when Caesar Augustus ruled over all the world. It's a reminder here that this is a historical time. This is a real person. Caesar Augustus ruled. He was the heir to Julius Caesar, who was adopted by him and placed as the Roman emperor over all the world. There's also here kind of Luke starts to play on this idea already that he makes sure Caesar Augustus says that all the world should be registered. And we're going to read here about the one who is the true king, the true ruler, the true savior of all the world. So Caesar Augustus may be the 
the current ruler of the world when Jesus comes, but Jesus is the true ruler of all people in the whole world. He specifically points out here in verse two that that it was during this time, during this season. Identifying this has two kind of reasons. We remember that the Bible is not a new book, but an ancient book that was written and that we still have with us today. God's words for us. But in a time that was very much so an oral culture, people would remember history by the significant events around it rather than say, oh yeah, that was like 1995. You could point to a significant event that happened around then. And this time of this census under this governor was a significant event. So when Luke is writing this many years after the life of Jesus, the audience that he's referring to throughout kind of the whole known world would immediately in their heads know about the amount of time that Luke is referring to. It's a significant worldwide event. It also sets up for us kind of the story that is to come. In verse three, when all went to be registered, each to his town, we're gonna see here that includes Joseph and Mary and the journey that they have in front of them. Verse four says this, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." So we, we're introduced here to a man named David, again, whose name was already mentioned last week. It's mentioned there multiple times in this passage, right? That, that it's the, he's at the house of David, to the city of David. It's a reminder to us of that prophecy last week that, that this son of Joseph and Mary would sit on the throne of David. The throne of David, which was to be an eternal kingdom. This thread is picked up again here in Luke chapter 2. It's also a reminder of of when it talks about this city of David. Now, it's interesting because when you think of the city of David, if you read the Old Testament, a natural place that your mind could be drawn to is Jerusalem. It is referred to at times as a city closely associated with David, who was the king who ruled and reigned from Jerusalem. But here it's the city of Bethlehem, David's hometown, which is also associated with him. This is done indeed to fulfill the prophecy in Micah chapter five, verse two, where it says this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And so by Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem, biblical prophecy of where this ruler, where this Messiah would come from is being fulfilled. Now, last week we talked about how Nazareth was such an insignificant city. If you look at your Old Testament, you won't find it anywhere. Well, Bethlehem is not a super significant city, but it does occur in scripture before we find it here in the New Testament. But when you thought of the the large regions of where a king would be born, you would have thought of Jerusalem. That was the hub. That was the center. That's where kings ruled and reigned throughout Israel's history. Bethlehem is not where we would have expected these events to take place, but it's where Mary and Joseph go. 
The events that, that are portrayed here in verse six and seven are often over-dramatized in our world. They're over-dramatized, which some of it I think is just due to our natural cultural wanting to make everything very dramatic and um, kind of television worthy. But what well, one commentator said about this passage is the striking thing about this is just how normal it all is. Just how normal the birth of the savior of the world was. See, we love to, to dramatize kind of it. And if you're like me, you, you can think of, of kind of documentaries, not documentaries, of movies that would talk about Jesus' birth and they're coming into town. You, you can picture Mary and Joseph and they're just about to enter Bethlehem when Mary starts to have contractions and Joseph's like, oh no, we got to find somewhere. And they start rushing through town. It's the last minute. It's the last second. Mary's going to give birth at any moment to this child. And they're not, they're not situated. They have nowhere to stay. Well, that's not what the Bible says. It says that while they were there, verse six, Mary and Joseph had likely been settled in Bethlehem for a period of time, days, weeks, even months, possibly, we don't know. But there's no sense here from the text that Mary is having labor pains literally while they're going down the road towards Bethlehem. But it's while they had already been settled there. We think also often of, of Joseph scrambling kind of last minute like this, right? And he's going around to what is called here the end, the last word there in verse 7. And we kind of have a cultural understanding to it, right? Like Joseph comes down Main Avenue in Bethlehem and there's the Super 8 over here, the Motel 6, the Hilton, the quality. And he goes to each of them, knocks on the door, totally full. No room in the hotel or the motel to stay at. And that is our cultural understanding of what we think of when we think of an inn. But this has no root in scripture or in the cultural context of the time. This inn that we think of is actually oftentimes not what we would actually define in our culture an inn at all. See, this word occurs a few other times in scripture that is translated here in, and every other time it referred to as a guest room. The most common use of this word is when Jesus returns to celebrate what is known as the Last Supper with his disciples in Jerusalem before he's to be crucified, and he does it at the guest room of a home. And so what most likely has happened here is that Mary and Joseph have traveled to Bethlehem, a place where Joseph has family and that they go to their relatives home, but there either is relatives who are already there or relatives that kind of outrank Joseph and Mary who are already staying in the guest room of their home. And so Joseph and Mary stay in the main room with the rest of the family. In Israelite culture, the normal house would have had two rooms, a main room, and then a guest room. The guest room is full. There was no more room in the guest room. And so Mary and Joseph are put in the main room, likely with the family who also lives there. And that's in that main room where Jesus is born. But you say, well, hold on, hold on. I thought Jesus was born in a barn or Jesus was born in a stable because we see here, right, that he is laid in a manger and a feeding trough for animals. So what are you talking about? That Jesus was probably born in the main room of a house. Again, cultural understanding. For back in this time, in the evenings, it was very common that you would actually bring in your household animals and they would sleep in the main room of the house with the family. And so a feeding trough, a manger 
wouldn't just be something that would be in what we would think of another room, a barn or a stable or even a cave, but a manger would be a common thing to pull in at night, kind of from outside your house and put it in that main room as well. And so what's, what's shocking about this story isn't Joseph's last minute scrambling. It's not that someone is turning away and saying no to the to be born savior of the world. No, it's just this. It's that, as I said before, how normal this is. That they go and travel to relatives' home. They just stay because th- there's too many family members already there in the main room. It's humble. It's unassuming. There's no pomp and circumstance about it. There's no celebrations that take place. Th- there's nothing big and significant. It's just very normal for that time and in that period. And so Jesus is born and laid in a manger in the house that they are staying in. But it doesn't just come there. It's this private thing here that we have, but the news starts to expand. Verse eight says this, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. And so the focus, which has been here in this home in the city of Bethlehem on Mary and Joseph and the birth of their child, who is to be the savior, now starts to broaden. And we kind of go outside the city of Bethlehem to where there are shepherds watching their flocks. Again, shepherds are just about, if you were to pick the most kind of common average person in their time, in their culture today, you would have picked someone who had an occupation like a shepherd. It would be like today you, you find someone who is just kind of a very normal occupation. They're, they're not like some esteemed scholar or doctor, but they just have kind of a normal job, a, a regular living wage in our world. That's how the shepherds were seen. There was nothing extraordinary about them. They were not the esteemed, the elite of society. They were very just average, common day people. And there they are. Again, just picture the scene. They're out in, on the countryside with their flocks when suddenly an angel appears. And their response is very similar as we saw to chapter one, a response when the angel of the Lord appears that they are filled with terror. They are filled with fear. And so the angel calms their fears. He says, fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy. Good news, a, a, a phrase that would be regularly associated when with a, a very special birth, a proclamation would go forth and good news would be announced for the arrival of the birth of someone. But if you know the, the meaning of good news throughout scripture, the root of this word actually is where we get the same root of the word gospel. Gospel, which literally means the good news. 
And so there's a play on words here already in Luke 2 that as Jesus is born, the good news or the gospel has arrived. The good news of what Jesus has come to do is here. And notice again, it is good news for who? For all the people. See, in in verse 1, we saw that Caesar Augustus ruled over the whole world. And here comes someone whose good news is for all people. See, in the gospel of Luke, it's one of the focuses of it is to see how what Jesus came to do was not just good news for Jews, but it was good news for everyone. The gospel and Christmas is good news for each and every person, no matter our upbringing, no matter our religious background, no matter our family background, Jesus coming to this world is good news for each and every one of us. So good news has come. He says, this day is born, and he says in verse 11, in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, sometimes we can get so, if if you've grown up around church or even around the Christmas story, you become so familiar with these terms that you can kind of just think like these are like Jesus's like middle names, right? It's Jesus, Christ, Savior, Lord. No, these are titles that are given to Jesus. First, Jesus is seen here as someone who would be the Savior, the Savior. In chapter one, we didn't look at it last week, but Zechariah looking at this birth that was to come prophesied of a horn of salvation that was to come. And immediately we see in chapter two that this is Jesus. When you look at the Old Testament regularly throughout, there's this figure of someone who comes and brings deliverance for God's people, who would save God's people, not just now, but for eternity. And Jesus, this child that is born to to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds are proclaimed, this is this savior, this one that the Old Testament said would come and save God's people. He's not just the savior, but it says that he is Christ. He is Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And Old Testament scripture looked forward to when this anointed king, when this Messiah would come and save Israel and and rescue God's people. And the angels are proclaiming that this child is that promised Messiah, the ones that the Old Testament scripture looked to. And then that he is Lord, that he is master, that he is over all a title of supremacy, that he is great in who he is, even though he is just a baby born that day, that he already is the Lord. He's the savior, he's the Messiah. And he is over all things. So Jesus came and and it's proclaimed here right away that Jesus came to be this. Jesus came to be savior, to be Christ and to be our Lord. And so often when it comes to the Christmas story, we love to think about culturally, we love to think about this cute and innocent baby Jesus. And if you're like me, you're still kind of shocked and astonished that you hear messages about Jesus proclaimed publicly all over this time of year. But we can't forget that Jesus's birth at Christmas isn't just a cute story about a young couple giving birth, but it's about what Jesus came to do. And what he came to do, his mission is tied to the very heart of who he is, even to his birth. Why did Jesus come? He came to be our savior. He came to be the Messiah who would deliver us from sin. And he came to be our 
Lord. That's who Jesus is. That's what he came here to do. And the angels proclaimed that. And then this huge heavenly host, which in Old Testament scripture typically speaks to an, an army of angels, not just like some cute choir, but an, an angelic army shows up and declares this praising God, glory to God in the highest and on earth amongst those with whom he is pleased. So verse 15 continues the story, right? The, the shepherds are kind of up there minding their own business and suddenly this amazing thing happens to them. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her hearts. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The shepherds go with haste. It's that same image of Mary last week going with haste to her cousin. But the shepherds now go with haste. They hurry to see this exciting news that's been proclaimed to them. And just as God had promised, so it was. Just as God had promised to Mary this child, so it was. And just as God had promised through the angels to these shepherds what it would be, they find it exactly as God had promised it to be. And so they go and they see and they observe Mary and Joseph and the child. And I love their response to it. That tied up in seeing the Christmas story and seeing what Jesus has come to do and knowing who this child was. Get this, they couldn't help, right? But explain it and tell others to it. This idea of, of evangelism, of sharing, of telling about Jesus is intimately tied up in the Christmas story. Because when the shepherds understood who it was that came on Christmas Day, they could not help but proclaim that to other people. The wonder of Christmas so overwhelmed them that they had to speak of it to others. I pray that's true for us even now. We don't get to go to Bethlehem and see Jesus lying in a manger. But the wonder of Christmas of what Jesus has done should have changed our hearts and our lives if we are followers of Jesus so much that we cannot help but proclaim him during this time. And so I would encourage you, I know, I know for many of us, myself included, evangelism, telling others about Jesus is not the easiest thing to do. It can be difficult, but I wanna encourage you during this, this Christmas season, to make sure that you're sharing the gospel, inviting people to hear the good news of what Jesus has done for them during this Christmas season. Invite them to our Christmas concert, a Christmas Eve service. Invite them over to your house and read the Christmas story, whatever way you want. Just remember that observing Christmas, realizing what Jesus has come to do should always result in us telling others about what we have seen, about this Jesus that we know. The shepherds could not help they were so overwhelmed at the good news that they had to share it. 
And when we think of Christmas, we should be so overwhelmed that God himself took on flesh and came to this earth to be our savior, our Messiah, and our Lord that we cannot help but proclaim it to others. And I love in verse 20, as the shepherds went their way, they glorified, <coughs> excuse me, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. They left the manger, they left the, this child Jesus and they glorified and praised God. See, this is what Christmas is all about, is worshiping Jesus. The worship of God is what Christmas is all about. See, it's starting to hit, at least for me, just on how different some of the next few weeks of celebrations will be. I've already started to see on my Facebook memories, different Christmas parties that I've been able to host or attend over many of the previous years that, that aren't happening this year. I'm going to miss getting together with big groups of friends. I'm going to miss my big family parties where there's a ton of us packed in one house and there's just, just joy and celebration of being together. But just because our celebration may be different, that's not what Christmas was all about anyways. See, Christmas was never about the presents. It wasn't about the friends. It wasn't about the family, as great as those things are. Christmas is all about the worship of God. Christmas is about our response of worship to God and what God has done for us that God himself has taken on human flesh. Jesus Christ came and was born to be our savior. It's right there from the very beginning. And that our response to that is worship. So in the midst of however different your celebrations are this year, I just want to remind you that it doesn't ruin your Christmas. Because Christmas was never about celebrating one way or the other. Christmas is all about the worship of Jesus. And no pandemic, nothing can stop that in our hearts and in our lives. So the Christmas story is this. God has taken on flesh. He was born and he came to be our savior. And so that's the reason that we celebrate. That's the reason that we can gather and sing. And we have normally these, these beautiful things. And this year it's different, but it's all about the worship of Jesus. So my prayer for us is that our hearts would still worship God for this amazing gift that he has given us by sending his son to this earth, no matter how different Christmas this year may be. God, we do thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to this world. We thank you that he is our savior, our Christ, and our Lord. God, we thank you for Jesus tonight. God, I pray for us that, that for many, this, these next week or so, these next two weeks may be very difficult. They may be different. But God, may we still be able to worship you, that we would glorify God, because that's what Christmas is all about. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.